I think that at almost every Palm Sunday that I have ever preached, I have made note sometime during the service, and I'm doing so again today, right now, that all over the world, people are waving palm branches. At the end of our service today, our young people may come back in here doing that very thing. They usually do. I'm not sure if they are this time or not, but they usually do. And all of this is done in honor of what theologians refer to as Jesus' triumphal entry. That day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt as the crowds waved their palm branches. That day on which Jesus acknowledged by that act and by other things that he was indeed the king of Israel. Of course, we know that on that day he did not take a crown of gold encrusted with jewels, did he? Instead, he opted for a different kind of crown, one made of thorns. And instead of sitting on a throne, he allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. But on that first of all Palm Sundays, Jesus declared to all who have the eyes to see that he was and is indeed the king. And it was not just something that happened way back then. It was planned. It was a declaration. And it was a picture, a foreshadow of something yet to come. And it's that something yet to come that we're going to look at today. And we're going to use the book of Revelation to do that. It gives us a glimpse of that time still in our future yet, of the telos, the end, the purpose and reason of that first Palm Sunday. So I'm going to invite you to join me once again, or not once again, but for the first time in a long time, in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 7, where we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 17. Of course, you can look at them on your electronic devices, devices, and we'll have the scriptures up on the screens on either side of me. Uh, so t- this passage today is part of a larger revelation which our Lord showed to John while he was on the Isle of Patmos. And at that time, John was an old man, and he was the last of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And it was through him that Jesus gives us a glimpse, some inside knowledge, as it were, through a series of visions of things yet to come. And our text is one of those visions. And in it, there are a number, and if it's okay with you, I'm just going to use the term characters for for lack of a better term. And and yet, in all that entourage there in heaven that we're going to see, the focus is on one group In particular, the focus is on the redeemed. But through them, well, some other things, I think, will come to light. The vision begins with these words in verse 9. And it's here in this verse in verse 9 that we see the tie-in to Palm Sunday. We read, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. This great multitude 
were holding palm branches, much like the crowd that day uh, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And though that crowd didn't fully understand what they were doing, we can and we should understand what it meant then, what it means now, and what it will mean at some day in the future. Palm branches in those days were symbols of triumph. So a winner of an athletic competition was given a palm branch. We give medals. They gave palm branches. And they signified their victory, and they would carry them as they made their way through the crowd, and everyone would see that palm branch and realize that they were the victor of whatever that particular event was. But palm branches were also used to greet a returning general or king who had been victorious in battle. They, they were a sign which honored him as they proclaimed his victory. And, and I want you to understand something. I want you to realize that, that when that king or that general won his victory, the whole kingdom, all of the people in it, had a share in that victory. They held their own palm branches, all of them were beneficiaries of what that king had done, that general did when they came out on top in all of his struggles against their enemy. That's the sense of the branches here in Revelation. They honor the king as they stand before his throne with the symbols of his victory and theirs in their hands. That's the tie-in to Palm Sunday. The first one, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, was a foreshadow of greater things to come. Now, there are two more things that we need to note before we leave this verse. First, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, the crowd was predominantly Jewish, uh, but not completely Jewish. There were, we know this from other passages in the Scripture, a fair number of what was referred to as God-fearers. They were Gentiles who were not Jews, right? And, and yet they acknowledged the God of the Jews as the one true God. So in that crowd that day, as Jesus came into the city, in a small way, that crowd prefigured what we see here in this picture of heaven. The multitude which stood before God, holding that symbol of victory, came from every tribe, every nation, tribe, people, and language. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God is no respecter of person or nations or people groups, and any and everyone who comes to him in faith are made part of his never-ending kingdom. The second thing here, uh, which is specifically told about this great multitude, which no one could count, <laughs> standing there before the throne of God, is that they were all dressed in white. You know, I have to wonder what it would have looked like to John seeing that vision as far as his eye could see a field of white reflecting the glory of God. What a sight it must have been. What a sight it will be. And you and I know already, I think, just from general biblical knowledge that their white robes symbolize their purity. 
It symbolizes their holiness. And without holiness, they could not have stood where they were standing. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in 1214, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. This multitude who stood in the presence of God Almighty were holy. They were pure. They were made that way by Christ. And it turns out that these white robes have a special significance that the text highlights. And it does so in a kind of an interesting way. It does so by asking and answering two questions which are recorded for us in verses 13 and 14. The questions are asked and answered by an elder. One of the characters in this vision, one of a total of 24 which were introduced in chapter 4 of this book. No one really knows uh, who or what these elders are. (laughs) Uh, Some people think that they were people like you and I who lived long ago and yet followed God like Enoch or Elijah. And others, for a few different reasons we won't go into, think that they're their own kind of a class of spiritual beings like cherubim or archangels which make up the hosts of heaven. But we don't need to know any more than we already know to understand what this elder was getting at. In verse 13, the elder asks his two questions. But verse 13 begins with John talking, so this is the way it sounds. Then one of the elders asked me, these in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? The elder proposes his two questions. Where, who are these people and where did they come from? And John responds at the beginning of uh, verse 14. He, he says, sir, you know. <laughs> and you might think from his response that he doesn't know the answer. And, and maybe he doesn't. But he doesn't even venture a guess, does he? And I think that's because John gets it. I think he understands that the elder already has the answer, and that's why he asked the question. John knew the elder would tell him, and therefore he would tell us what we need to know here. Listen to the answer in verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The elder answers the second question first he tells john they came out of the great tribulation that's where they're from and we're going to come back to this idea of the tribulation in a moment but i want you to notice the elder does not tell john what we already know from reading the text what we would have expected him to say what we would have said ourselves if we had been asked that question he didn't say they came from every corner of the globe every nation tribe people and language they did, but that's, that's not what he tells us here. That's not what he's getting at. He tells us something else, something much more important than that, something more basic to who they are, more basic than whatever nation or tribe or people they belong to or what language they spoke. The point here is that they came out of the great tribulation. They had stood the test They had persevered. The tribulation they went through was great, but they came through it. And and that is where they're from. And now, because they came from there, they stand before the living God. 
And after answering that question, then he answers the question about who they are. And he tells John that these are those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's who they are. It's what defines them. It's what makes them. It's what saves them. And who they are is more important even than where they are from. Who they are is why they were able to stand to go through that great tribulation. The most important question was asked first, but answered last, giving it both priority and prominence. Washing their robes in the blood of the Lamb is, of course, symbolic language. It tells us that those people there are gathered around that throne that day had put their faith in God and what he had accomplished through the Lamb on the cross. And by that faith, they were made pure. They were made holy. And by that faith, they came through the great tribulation. That multitude assembled there before the throne stood there because of the blood of the Lamb, because of Jesus' work on the cross. That's what enabled them to stand the test. Now, now there's one other idea that we need to address that I, I said we'd come back to, and that is what's meant here by the Great Tribulation. <laughs> uh, and some theologians believe the term here... Uh, applies to the tribulations which Jesus told his disciples they would have in this world, the tribulations that you and I face and Christians have faced down through the ages. And, And others, and probably the majority, take this to mean the tribulation at the end times. And, and I don't disagree. But if that's the case, it really raises an interesting idea, don't you think? If that great multitude which no one could count, comes out of that tribulation, the one at the end of end times, then what a revival that's going to be. Like nothing this world has ever seen up until then. While the things in the world are getting worse and worse and everyone is suffering because of them, other things, those things related to heaven and God and salvation will be getting better and better as more people come to know Christ. It also means this. There are even more people in heaven than that great multitude that couldn't be counted because people have been coming to the cross for almost 2,000 years now. Now, one last comment, if I could, to kind of close the circle and bring this uh, Uh, idea about the great tribulation at uh, at the end of times to uh, close. The tribulation at the end of times really does represent all tribulations throughout time. The book of the Revelation tells us about the last of the last days, but it has spoken to God's people wherever and whenever They had faced persecution. That was its intention. It was not meant just to give us a kind of calendar of the last days, but it is a word of encouragement to the persecuted throughout the ages. So on that first Palm Sunday when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, as he himself acknowledged that he was indeed king, 
There were all kinds of people there, Jews and and non-Jews. No one but Jesus really understood what was happening that day. And many in that crowd that were singing his praises on Palm Sundays would in just a few short days on that Friday be calling for his death. And yet that first Palm Sunday pointed past itself to a day yet to come when the redeemed, those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who stood with him through all the trials which came their way, will be gathered before the throne of God as victors celebrating his victory. Now this section of Scripture, this vision that God gave the church through the Apostle John is brought to a close in verses 15 through 17. Uh, And we're going to go there now, but we're not going to be finished with those verses. But an elder is talking to John, as we've seen, and he tells him and tells us briefly, for there's more to come than what these few words can capture. But the elder tells John something about the reward that the redeemed will receive. And we're going to look briefly at those things right now, beginning in verse 15. And I'm going to read it, and then I'll just make some comments. So this is what it says. Therefore they, that's the redeemed, are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. The redeemed are before the throne of God. Now, we've already seen that in verse 9, but it's repeated here for emphasis. The redeemed, behold the face of God. They see him here in all of his glory. The old theologians refer to that sight as the beatific vision. It's that sight which to see is the greatest joy of all joys that can be had. Those before the throne see God. And they need no mediator. You see, Christ already stood in the breach. They know no priest, nor church, nor anyone else. Christ's work was sufficient to them. They are now children of God, now and forever. The text tells us that the redeemed will serve God day and night. And I think to the lost that must be sound awful that they have to serve this God day and night. But that's an inclusio, that day and night. They're bookends, and and it means it to include everything in between. And it tells us that, that they never flag in their commitment to God as we so often do in this sin-scarred world and this sin-laden body of flesh. The redeemed will serve in his temple. The Old Testament was a temple was the one place where they could meet with God. It was the one place where it could be said that God inhabited but it was a temporary arrangement pointing to a better day. And verse 15 talks about that better day, for we are forever in the place where God lives. And to serve God is not a chore. It's not a drudgery. It's the highest honor. To serve is to be like God himself. You understand, don't you? If you don't know this, let me tell you. God loves you, and he serves you. 
Jesus did not pretend to be a servant. He was. He never did anything he didn't see the Father doing. We don't pretend to be servants here so we can rule up there. We're learning to serve now because we always will serve. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. You can think of it in this way. It's, this, it's like the joy that you've experienced, that I've experienced, many of us have, when we've done something for the love of our life. I know you've been married a long time. might have to think back a little bit, but you do remember, don't you? You do remember those days when you were dating, those days when just to be with her, oh, so good. And any time you could do something, even the smallest thing, you just thought it was a joy. We, we do that with our children, don't we? We do that with our, our, our grandchildren. I get to do that now with my grandchild. That's what it means. That's what it means to serve. It's the giving of yourself. And that's the most satisfying of any of the things we do. The last thing that verse 15 tells us is that God will shelter us them with his presence. See, where God is, there's good, and there is now no place where there is anything left to fear. Verse 16 continues, I thought the Redeemer shelter, they have nothing to fear, even down to the smallest of things. We read there, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down them, nor any scorching heat. Hunger and thirst represents needs. But here in the presence of God, there are no needs of any kind. There will not even be any kind of distress either, not even the smallest distress of a hot and a humid day. And finally, in verse 17, we're brought back to the throne and the one who sits on it. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This vision closes by reminding us of that great multitude around the throne that, that are the special possession of the Lamb who is also the shepherd. All of the good of heaven comes to us because of the Lamb. Not for the first time in this book, the Lamb is pictured at being at the center of the throne, an affirmation that he is God along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, when he was on this work, he earth talked about the living waters that one could drink of and never thirst again. And he leads us to that spring. And you and I, if you have some biblical knowledge, understand that the springs of living water refer to the Holy Spirit in whom is life. And so we have him in us now and we have eternal life in us now. But then, then it's going to be the fullest it's going to be like nothing we've gone. We're going to swim in it. We're going to drink it. It's going to be our light. It's going to be all around us and in us and through us. And the final promise here is that God will wipe away every tear. Whatever sufferings or sorrows we've known will no longer matter. Here and now, I know there are many people with deep wounds of sorrow, sadness, hurt, pain, 
wounds that they've gotten here in this world and sorrows and wounds which will never be completely healed in this life. It's true. I know that. But there, before the throne, in the presence of the Lamb, the healing is complete. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. The pain and the sorrow will be swallowed up by joy. I'm going to brag a little bit again. Our son and his wife just had their first child, and that reminded me of my own journey. Reminded me of being in the hospital, being with Ann, being there in the labor. I remember what she went through. I remember feeling powerless and helpless there. I remember following the instructions of the Lamas and took up that little thing that was supposed to be a distraction, a little tiny stuffed pony of many colors. Look, honey, look at this. Get that out of my face. (laughs) And then the baby was born. And there wasn't even a memory of the pain. Just as the Bible says, the travail is forgotten because a child is born into the world. That's what it's going to be like when we're with Christ. All those pains, all those sorrows, all the sadness, all those hurts that that you bear now that still weigh on you. They'll be taken away as if they never happened. There's a day coming when the redeemed, when you and I and all those who've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and who have stood with him through all the trials that have come our way will be gathered before the throne of God as victors celebrating his victory in God's presence where we will serve him in joy, where there will be no need nor the slightest distress where joy will heal all of our sorrows as we drink in life, where we will be filled with real life. And what a day that's going to be. But we're not quite finished with this passage yet. And you have noticed, I think, that I skipped over one section, which we're going to look at right now and bring our time together this morning to a close. In verse 9, John described what must have been that glorious scene. And I'd like to read verse 9 again to remind us of that and to kind of set up what what follows. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand. And that description, I think, if we let that word sink in, if we listen with our heart and our mind, it hints at the staggering beauty of that moment. Like, like the smell of good cooking. <laughs> we don't have the taste yet, but we have some idea of what's coming. So we can, if that picture can begin to have that effect on us now just by reading it, what will it do within those who are actually there? Well, verse 10 answers that question, at least in part. It tells us what filled the hearts of the redeemed as they stand there before God because it comes out of their mouth. 
And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The multitude that no one could count cried out as they stood before God. Their voices were one voice. And that one voice was loud and it proclaimed the truth as they praised God. They acknowledged that salvation belongs to God who is on the throne, the God who rules, and it belongs to the Lamb who was slain for our sins. There is no other salvation available but what God has. The church doesn't own it. A priest cannot give it to you. Good deeds don't procure it. Baptism does not make it happen. Salvation belongs to God and comes from him as a free gift. And he offers it to any and all who put their trust in the cross of Christ, who put their faith in what he did when he went to that cross and took away our sins. The multitude from all the earth right now can testify to that. And one day, together, with one voice, we will. And those words, that thought, it's so common in our circles, isn't it? We may even say, sadly, that it's too common while also being not common enough. (laughs) I mean, we talk about it among ourselves so that it seems to be tame. (laughs) Well, we forget those who don't know where it might light a fire. Yet it's not the truth that loses its edge. It's our sin that dulls our senses so that we don't have a full appreciation of our faith. Verses 11 and 12 will, I think, they're intended to renew something of that wonder about our salvation. Listen as I read them. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The joy on that first Palm Sunday is nothing compared to what is is to come. At that statement, that the redeemed gathered around the throne made, that salvation belongs to God, at the sound of the praise coming from the lips of the redeemed, from those who had been lost in their sin, but who are now saved, the entire heavenly entourage, all the beings that have inhabited heaven since the dawn of creation, they fall down on their faces, overcome by wonder, at what God has done for those who were his enemies. They're before the throne of the one who has all power, who owns salvation, who freely gives it out, and they worship God. They see his power, his love, his grace, and there is only one response to that goodness, worship. And the first thing out of their mouths as they're on their, on their faces is the word amen. They, they declare their complete agreement with what the, the redeemed have just proclaimed. They see with their eyes what the redeemed know in their heart. At their declaration, the heavenly host is overcome. 
And then the host of heaven offers words of praise in response to that declaration. Do you know that almost everything they mention here, and maybe I should say everything they mention here, belongs to God already? He cannot be more wise or honorable or powerful or strong than he already is. His glory is his own and cannot be greater. Now, there are two things that already belong to God, but which we may add to praise and thanks, right? They belong to him, but we may offer them. And maybe the same could be said of glory and honor. They're already his. But can we add our voices to that? And so in some small measure, (laughs) I don't know what a mathematician would say to this, but add to infinity that already is. That final amen there is the heavenly host. It's their invitation. It's their invitation from you that are here today for any who read this word to agree with them and join them in the worship of our great God and Lamb. Do you (laughs) join them? Will you join them? That's the great response. That's the real appreciation of what God has done for us sinful people that we are. So that first Palm Sunday is a fact of history. It's the beginning of the church's celebration of it down through the centuries. That there's a day coming when the redeemed, when you and I, I know I'll be there, I hope you will be, and all those who've washed their, blood, their robes in the blood of the Lamb, who've stood with them through their trials, when we will gather before the throne of God as victors, celebrating his victory, in God's presence where we will serve him in joy, where there will be no need, nor the slightest distress, where joy will heal all our sorrows as we will be full of real life. And our presence there because of God will result in all of heaven being overwhelmed with wonder. The very beginning of a time which will never end. Where joy is the watchword. Where we will be immersed in the glory of God. Where we'll be finally, fully what we are supposed to be. What we are becoming now children of God, those redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, but we will be that in perfection. Can I ask you, doesn't that sound wonderful? It should. I want to leave you with a question. Maybe kind of two questions. But they're the same thing. Will you be there? Have you trusted in Jesus? Will you? Will you be there? If you don't know, you have any doubt come see me 
Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that um, you sent your Son into our world because nothing we could do, no law could save us, nothing in all the universe could take our sin away. So you sent your Son from outside the universe who became a man who uh, could take our sins away man who was tempted in every way that we are and yet was without sin. So he was without spot or blemish, which is what the Lamb of God had to be. And he went to that cross and he took my sins, all of our sins, all the sins of all the people of all the world of all time, he took in his body on that cross so that we could die to sin and live for righteousness. If there's anyone here who doesn't know that truth, open their hearts and their lives. In Jesus' name.